Hello, and welcome to the fourth episode of Dissecting Philosophy with Dr. MacDonald. Last episode, Zarathustra was discussing the concept of the ultimate man, and the way in which this ultimate man were very robotic and emotional and inhuman in their characteristics and outlook. So moving on to section 6, we're going to have a discussion of the tightrope walker who's been progressively making his way across the rope as Zarathustra's been having a discussion. So let's get cracking on then. Section 6. But then something happened that silenced every mouth and fixed every eye. In the meantime, of course, the tightrope walker had begun his work. He had emerged from a little door and was proceeding across the rope, which was stretched between two towers and thus hung over the people and the market square. Just as he had reached the middle of his course, the little door opened again and a brightly dressed fellow like a buffoon sprang out and followed the former with rapid steps. Forward, lame foot cried his fearsome voice. Forward, sluggard, intruder, pallid face, lest I tickle you with my heels. What are you doing here between towers? You belong in the tower. You should be locked up. You are blocking the way of a better man than you. And with each word he came nearer and nearer to him. And when he was only a single pace behind him, there occurred the dreadful thing that silenced every mouth and fixed every eye. He emitted a cry like a devil and sprang over the man standing in his path. But the latter, when he saw his rival thus triumph, lost his head and the rope. He threw away his pole and fell faster even than it, like a vortex of legs and arms. The market square and the people were like a sea in a storm, they flew apart in disorder, especially where the body would come crashing down. So ultimately, the tightrope walker is overtaken on the rope by the buffoon, is surprised by this and then falls. What's happening here on a deeper level is that we have to go back to the idea of what exactly does the tightrope walker represent. And that's precisely that the tightrope walker represents man in the midst of a journey of learning and education and in the midst of this learning and education along comes a buffoon basically who then overtakes the person and then you're so surprised by that you then completely lose your balance and it's quite a profound point when you think upon it because it's really saying here that all what it takes is one idiot to come along to basically knock us off balance. And what we ultimately remember is the person that got to the other side, the idiot. And we don't care about the person who's been knocked off and left for dead. And so 
there's a profound way in which we could think of knowledge itself being shaped here and formed in the way in which we have this competition in which one person through their actions alone everybody will be enamored with everybody will be sucked in by but on the other hand the person or the man walking across the tightrope the person who's in the midst of all the education and learning everybody will just forget all about them everybody will forget about their own viewpoint and their own journey because all what we care about is the person who made it to the other side and here we could view Nietzsche's own philosophy in terms of the tightrope walker and Nietzsche's sister being the buffoon that knocks Nietzsche's philosophy off and what we're left with is ultimately Nietzsche's sister's view of how we should think of Nietzsche's philosophy rather than what he had to say himself and to put it into a little bit of context Nietzsche's sister was a big anti-semitic and she ended up marrying a very high-ranking military official in the German army who was also very anti-semitic and within the given time period there was an incredible amount of anti-Semitism going about. Benici himself wasn't anti-Semitic. In fact, he actually fell out with his sister over precisely that issue. And there's letters that you can see that's got really heated discussion from Nietzsche himself against this anti-Semitism that's emerging within Germany in the given time period. But for the last 10 years of his life, Nietzsche went into famously a withdrawal from the world due to ill health. And what happened during this period as well is that his sister, who was very anti-Semitic and later on had um, strong connections to the Nazi party in Germany, and went about altering Nietzsche's notebook, which are collected together in a a big book called The Will to Power, and twisting around what he said in order for it to fit in with the uh, Nazi ideology and Nazi view of the world, which of course is absolutely complete rubbish. And uh, for the longest amount of time period, Nietzsche's scholarship had to try and dig Nietzsche's own philosophy out of this horrible association to the Nazi party and the Nazis' party's adoption of Nietzsche's philosophy. So from all that, we can see the point in that here we've got a bunch of buffoons knocking somebody off. And what you end up with is the buffoons version of things, the buffoons events. Continuing on, Arthustra remained still and the body fell quite close to him, badly injured and broken, but not yet dead. After a while, consciousness returned to the shattered man and he saw Zarathustra kneeling beside him. What are you doing? he asked at length. I've known for a long time the devil would trip me up, and now he's dragging me to hell. Are you trying to prevent him? On my honour, friend, answered Zarathustra. All you have spoken of does not exist. There is no devil and no hell. Your soul will be dead even before your body. Therefore, fear nothing any more. The man looked up mistrustfully. If you are speaking the truth, he said then, I leave nothing 
when I leave life. I am not much more than an animal which has been taught to dance by blows and starvation. Not so, said Zarathustra. You have made danger your calling. There is nothing in that to despise. Now you perish through your calling, so I will bury you with my own hands. And when Zarathustra had said this, the dying man replied no more, but he motioned with his hand, as if he sought Zarathustra's hand to thank him. So we have this relation to the afterlife that's immediately going on with the tightrope walker, of course, in the process of dying and fearful, doesn't want to go to hell. Zarathustra saying, it's okay, there's no such thing as hell. There's no such thing as the devil. And then we have the way in which he reflects very briefly on his life. How I live my life no better than an animal. And Zarathustra says, no, that's not the case. You've lived your life dangerously. This makes you more than an animal. So Nietzsche's point on here and living dangerously, of course, comes from another book of Nietzsche's, The Gay Signs, and a very famous quote, The secret for harvesting from existence the greatest fruitfulness and the greatest enjoyment is to live dangerously. So immediately there comes to mind an objection. When anybody says to you to live dangerously, you think... Well, wait a minute, that doesn't sound very good for us at all. That doesn't sound very pleasurable here. Doesn't that mean to go and just basically be an alcoholic or a drug addict? Just ultimately just having a carefree lifestyle or one that puts us at danger at all times, like in an ultimate thrill-seeking adrenaline rush sort of lifestyle. But if we think about what Nietzsche's trying to say here is that is really being an alcoholic or a drug addict, is that really enjoying your life? Is that really living life to the fullest? If you can repeat it, if that is to say, if you can live your life over and do all that stuff again, would you really want to second time around? And that's really more of what Nietzsche's trying to get at here. To live dangerously means to ultimately enjoy your life, have some excitement in your life, to the extent that if you could do it over again, that you'd want to. And so the view is very much life-affirming and to be viewed as something that's positive for us and is completely against the ideas as of us doing any harm to ourselves or others. Section 7. In the meanwhile, evening had come, and the market square was hidden in darkness. Then the people dispersed, for even curiosity and terror grow tired. But Zarathustra sat on the ground beside the dead man, and was sunk in thought. Thus he forgot the time. But at length it became night, and a cold wind blew over the solitary figure. Then Zarathustra arose and said to his heart, Truly, Zarathustra has had a handsome catch today. He caught no man, but he did catch a corpse. Uncanny is human existence, and still without meaning, a buffoon can be fatal to it. I want to teach men the meaning of their existence, which is the superman, the lightning from the dark cloud man. 
but I'm still distant from them, and my meaning does not speak to their minds. To men, I'm still a cross between a fool and a corpse. Dark is the night, dark are Zarathustra's ways. Come, cold and stiff companion, I'm going to carry you to the place where I shall bury you with my own hands. So there's an irony that's going on here as well. Zarathustra didn't catch a man, but he caught a corpse today. So in relation to knowledge, that's exactly what Nietzsche is saying here, is that the people here are wanting the ultimate man, the robotic existence, a pleasant lifestyle that doesn't rock the boat. Everybody's the same, emotionless, passionless people. So in a way, the living people themselves are no better than corpses walking around, basically lifeless zombies and a zombie-like existence or aspiring towards that zombie-like existence. For example, you could get that sort of like at the start of Shaun of the Dead before the zombies happen in which you have just everybody going about their normal everyday life. And you could precisely see how everybody's very zombie-like. And then, of course, the zombies then happen. But then it's like, well, not much has really changed. Everybody was zombies before, and now everybody's just zombies afterwards as well. And we can also see what Nietzsche means by the line, a buffoon can be fatal to it, because it steers humanity towards the ideas of becoming zombified and emotionless and passionless. And how do you do that is through a move towards a focus on the metaphysical grounding and afterlife and a move away from this world and the body. And there's also the sense of a buffoon can be fatal to human existence. Touches upon what Nietzsche says about Socrates. And we can find Nietzsche's view of Socrates in chapter one of Twilight of the Idols. And that's called the problem. Of Socrates. One of the characteristics that Nietzsche states that Socrates has is that he was a buffoon. And why is he a buffoon? Is because he runs around the place saying, I know nothing, which very briefly means just to have a an objective outlook that's unbiased and doesn't take any particular position over the other, which you can see is very useful in a discussive situation where you have lots of different viewpoints and you have one person come along who's objective and unbiased they can suddenly act as a mediator between all these different people and Nietzsche says that Socrates is a buffoon who got himself taken seriously so suddenly the man who's objective and unbiased is suddenly given a purpose and a bias and who's who does that to Socrates is Plato, of course. And what does Plato do? He moves everything towards metaphysics and the afterlife and away from the body and towards the soul. So from both the Plato example there and Nietzsche's sister, we, we can see the way in which buffoons are harmful for human existence because of the way in which they twist and manipulate the way we view things and understand things in the world in an incorrect way. And then, of course, comes a good point. Well, what is the correct way? Zarathustra says, that's the Superman. It's not towards an ideal. It's not a goal. It's not towards this metaphysical foundation. It's something that where we can be affirmative of the world 
affirmative of life, affirmative of our bodies, and enjoying life as well, and enjoying the world, and enjoying our bodies. Life isn't all just about suffering and misery. Section 8. When Zarathustra had said this to his heart, he loaded the corpse on his back and sat forth. But not gone a hundred paces when a man crept up to him and whispered in his ear, and behold, it was the buffoon of the tower who spoke to him. Go away from this town, O Zarathustra, he said. Too many here hate you. The good and the just hate you and call you their enemy and despiser. The faithful of the truth faith hate you and they call you a danger to the people. It was lucky for you that they laughed at you and truly you spoke like a buffoon. It was lucky for you that you made company with the dead dog and by so abasing yourself you have saved yourself for today. But leave this town or tomorrow I shall jump over you, a living man, over a dead one. And when he had said this, the man disappeared. Zarathustra, however, went on through the dark streets. At the town gate, the gravediggers accosted him. They shone their torch in his face, recognized Zarathustra and greatly derided him. Zarathustra is carrying the dead dog away. Excellent that Zarathustra has become a grave digger, for our hands are too clean for this roast. Does Zarathustra want to rob the devil of his morsel? Good luck then, a hearty appetite. But if the devil is a better thief than Zarathustra, he will steal them both. He will eat them both. And they laughed and put their heads together. Zarathustra said nothing and went his way. When he had walked for two hours past woods and swamps, he had heard too much hungry howling of wolves and grew hungry himself. So he stopped at a lonely house in which a light was burning. Here we can see Nietzsche problematizing the way in which the general public have adopted these ideas of what's good and something that's in terms of being faithful the true idea of faith, and that these general ideas that they have adopted is, of course, incorrect and harmful to them. And we can precisely see the way in which it's harmful because the tightrope walker and Zarathustra haven't done anything at all wrong. But by simply not adhering to the norm, that's what's generally accepted by everyone, then you're judged according to what everybody generally believes. And so you have this really quite horrible point in which everybody's been really nasty to Zarathustra, who's doing a really good thing, of course, because he's gone out to bury a guy who nobody's, of course, going to bury themselves, and so his courts would just be out there rotten otherwise. But no, it's like everybody's been really horrible to Zarathustra at this point, not offering any help whatsoever. And from the mindset of the people, it's like, well, why should we help him? He's done nothing to say that he's a good person. He's done nothing to adhere to what guarantee him a good afterlife. So why should we bother? And we can see Nietzsche's point here is like, my God, let's just respect the man for what he did and treat another person like a human being. 
without suddenly judging their actions in that given way, especially when he's done precisely nothing wrong. So continuing on then, Zarathustra is a hungry man and he needs some food. Hunger has waylaid me, said Zarathustra, like a robber. My hunger has waylaid me in woods and swamps and in the depth of night. My hunger has astonishing moods. Often it comes to me only after mealtimes, and today it did not come at all. Where has it been? And with that, Zarathustra knocked on the door of the house. An old man appeared and carried a light and asked, Who comes here to me and to my uneasy sleep? A living man and a dead man, said Zarathustra. Give me food and drink. I forgot about them during the day. He who feeds the hungry refreshes his own soul. Thus speaks wisdom. The old man went away, but returned at once and offered Zarathustra bread and wine. This is a bad country for hungry people, he said. This is why I live here. Animals and men come here to me, the hermit. But bid your companion eat and drink. He is wearier than you. Zarathustra answered, my companion is dead. I shall hardly be able to persuade him. That has nothing to do with me, said the old man morosely. Whoever knocks at my door must take what I offer him. Eat and fare you well. So who does Zarathustra get the kindness from? It's from a hermit in the woods and not from the people. And there's that deep point here that the hermit is being kind here because he doesn't think his actions are going to be judged in any way negative. And so nobody's going to look down upon him in the way in which you would do in society. Like, oh my God, did they just give charity towards that person? Or did they help that person? Oh, how dare they? And then you can see all the looking down upon them. Even if what they did wasn't even wrong, there's still all that judgment that comes with it. And here, of course, we have a nice wee relation into the body, in which Nietzsche is very big on the way in which we must keep our body in a healthy way in order for our mind to keep on chugging along. And there's a nice wee section in his book called Eka Homo, where he talks about the perfect diet to have, or at least his perfect diet, in which he says, don't have coffee in the mornings, no coffee whatsoever. Because coffee makes you gloomy and only have tea in very small quantities, but make it very strong tea. If it's too weak, it'll indispose you the rest of the day, he says. So we have got that idea of you've got to keep your right sort of bodily temperament going and your right dietary needs in order to not only keep on going along, but also it's a really important thing for our thoughts and ideas too, in order to keep ourselves healthy. Rounding off the section then, after that, Zarathustra walked two hours more and trusted to the road and to the light of the stars, for he was used to walking abroad at night and liked to look into the faces of all that slept. But when morning dawned, Zarathustra found himself in a thick forest and the road disappeared. Then he laid the dead man in a hollow tree at his head, for he wanted to protect him from the bulls, and laid himself down on the mossy ground 
and straight away he fell asleep, weary in body, but with a soul at rest. So Zarathustra puts the corpse of the tightrope walker into the tree in order to stop his corpse getting eaten up by the wolves that are clearly smelling something and howling. And I think what's particularly fantastic is this image of man in a tree that's going on here. Because we have a very traditional image of knowledge being like a tree of knowledge, especially in philosophy, when we have the idea of knowledge all unfolding out in this tree-like form. So you can have, like, the roots being the metaphysics and the basis for things, and then the physical world and being the, the tree trunk. And then from that, you can have all the other things that come out of that, like all the sciences and so forth, being all the different branches and little offshoots of the trunk of the tree. But what's great about what Nietzsche does about all that, of course, he shoves the man directly in the this tree. It's almost like saying knowledge wouldn't be anything at all. And our whole foundation of thought wouldn't be anything without precisely people that create them in the first place. So the importance is not upon the idea, but moving it around to say that it's the people that create the ideas. Thank you very much for listening to the podcast. I hope that was an enjoyable little discussion of Nietzsche's Zarathustra and the prologue sections 6, 7 and 8. Next time we'll be rounding off with a discussion of sections 9 and 10. This will be going into a discussion of Nietzsche's idea of companions and friendship, Nietzsche's concept of reevaluation and what it means to reevaluate things, and also a discussion of the image of the eagle and the serpent. Feel free to give me a wee email at dissectingphilosophy at gmail.com. Thank you very much for listening, and I'll hope you join us next time.